Let's open in our copy of the Bible this morning to Matthew 14 once again. Very popular story of Christ, uh, probably other than his resurrection, the most popular miracle uh, that he performed, and I'll explain what I mean by that here in just a little while. But I'm just going to read the text for uh, saving a little time. I'm, I'm up here a little late this morning, so I'm uh, going to try to redeem the time the best as we can. Uh, but let's uh, follow along in your copy of the Word as I read to you this morning. And now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus says, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they say to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And so Jesus said, bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down in the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. As you uh, study church history, I'm kind of an armchair church historian. I've, I've, I enjoy reading about church history. Some of my favorite people, uh, some of my heroes are uh, some of the great pastors and theologians of the past who did amazing things here and there. And, uh, but one of the, the kind of overall patterns you see, this is not a this is not a, uh, there, it's not to say that there aren't exceptions, but, but one of the overall patterns you see is that uh, there have been times, especially in Western history, where there has been a major shift of technology, a major uh, leap forward in technology. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the printing press and how much of a radical change that was in Western culture. And, uh, and one of the things that you'll notice is that in, in the overall culture, that anytime there is a radical shift like that, a leap forward in technology, there is usually a worldview shift that kind of tends to follow it, that, that the people begin to think differently. They begin to act differently. They begin to question things that long-held traditions and stuff like that. And that is something that comes very commonly during those times. And beloved, that is the reason why I believe that as you go through church history, you will find that every major movement of God, every major, we're talking international movements of God, we are talking major revivals, that many of them took place after a major shift in technology like this. After the printing press, we saw the Reformation happened. As industrialization was beginning and machines were beginning to be built, we saw the first great awakening. We saw the kind of the seeds of the Puritan movement that were, that were coming about. 
We saw the, uh, all of these kinds of different things. And, and one of the things we know about our world is that we have been through a major shift in technology. Who would have thought that today you would be carrying little bitty computers in your pocket that literally give you access to the entire world in the palm of your hands? And even then, those are getting smaller and smaller and smaller to where now they literally fit in little earpieces in your ear and you're starting to wear them on your wrist. And they're even got glasses where you can put over your eyes and just see a whole new world. And they've got all of these different things. And with that shift in technology, there has also been a shift of worldview in our nation, has there not? We've become a much smaller world. And because of that smaller world, all of these old traditions and things that were held to for very long times began to be questioned. And that's why I believe, beloved, that we are in the beginnings of what is a great return to God in the churches. I mean, look what's happened here at Calvary. And look what's happened at churches abroad. Look at all of the great work that is being done. And so with every shift of technology, and the reason why I believe that is, is simply this. Because the church, when this happens, the church begins to understand that they cannot depend on the culture anymore to maintain their church. And it drives them back to the scriptures. That's what happens every single time. And that is why I believe that we are in the midst of a, of, of a movement of God that is growing, a return to biblical theology, a, turn, a return to taking the word seriously again. Not that it ever wasn't taken seriously, but a, but a commitment to it that, is, that, that we had not seen before. And so last week, as we looked at this shaping of the community that Matthew is doing, how he's instructing us through the life of Christ of how the church is to be shaped and how it is to be ran and how it is to be done and how it is to function and all of that. We saw last week that Jesus's hometown rejected him and we saw that Herod rejected and killed John. And if you think about the two temptations of the church to rely on to maintain our church is what? Our home culture, and our state legislature. And there is always, we're, we're always trying to, to, to get these two things to do the work of the church for us. And we understand that we just can't do that anymore. Those things are rejecting us. And therefore, we need to go back to the scriptures. We need to go back to what Matthew is saying, that this is what the church is. This is how it is supposed to be shaped. This is how it is supposed to be functioned because both of those other things will, will fail us. Therefore, what can we lean on? Or better to the question, who can we lean on? And that is the question before us. As I mentioned, Matthew is shaping the, the, the covenant community and what it is to look like. I mentioned last week in the, in the four gospels, the word church only appears twice and in the four gospels and both of them are occurring in this section of Matthew and that is not a coincidence. We see it in chapter 16 and we'll see it in chapter 18. And so as we are moving on, we saw that Jesus in verse 13, excuse me, 
Now, when Jesus hears this, he withdraws from there in a boat to a a a desolate place. He hears about John, and he travels across the sea by boat to the the northeastern side of the sea, which is around the Bethsaida area. It's around that area. And when you think of desert here, when you think of deserted or desolate, don't think Judea. We're not in Judea. We are in Galilee. And so it's, uh, it's not the kind of desert you're thinking of. It's really a better understanding is uh, empty. So they come to an empty place. In other words, there's no towns nearby. There's really nowhere to go. It's just an open, flat plain uh, filled with grass. And, uh, and it's, it's, the, it's the idea that this is a wilderness. It's just not a, necessarily a wilderness, of, a wilderness of, uh, of desolate rock. It's more like a wilderness like the state of Kansas. All right? <laughs> so uh, if you've ever been through Kansas, you know what I'm talking about. It gives a whole new meaning to the phrase amber waves of grain. I never understood that until I went to western Kansas. So, um, and then I never wanted to go back. But anyway, so... And as we get there, we're going to see that the question is, we saw in last week that we are a countercultural community, that the hometown rejected Jesus, the government rejected John and killed him. And so the question is, what is it that we can lean on? Who is it that can sustain us? And we're going to see this morning that we must depend upon Christ to sustain our Christian lives and community. That is the point of Matthew's recollection of this miracle. And so why must we? We're gonna, I believe Matthew gives us three reasons this morning. And that is because Christ's compassion is unwavering, because our solutions are inadequate, and because Christ's provisions, Christ's provisions are abundant. We're going to see that this morning. So let's look at verses 13 and 14. The first thing we see here is that, is that Christ's compassion is unwavering. In verse 14, when he goes to the shore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. I want you to get the picture for a moment. Christ is, is moving away from the area. He, is, uh, he heard about John. I don't think he's moving out of fear, but, but he's getting away to maybe avoid attention uh, to himself. Maybe he's doing it to grieve John uh, and his death. We don't know. It doesn't actually say why he goes to this area. It just says that he goes, and, he's, and it says that he's going by himself, and, and obviously his disciples are with him. I think that's really in order to be by himself, in order that he can have this time with his disciples and But when he gets on the shore, the other people all around the shore, all around there, they, they hear that Jesus is going to this area. They can kind of see him on the lake. And so they're all kind of following to where he's going, and they're bringing all of their sick with him. And we know that this crowd <laughs> is about 5,000 people. Where are all these people coming from? Well, in John chapter 6, it tells us that the Passover is near. And so there's probably a lot of people staying in these villages and they're hearing the rumors, they're hearing the things that's going on and then their relatives or whoever are saying, look, there's Jesus on the lake there, let's go and they're following him. 
And so they're following him to this area, to this deserted place, to this empty place, and he gets out on the shore, and keep in mind that, that while he wants to be by himself, he wants to get this time with his disciples, he gets out on the shore, and he sees this massive 5,000 crowd, of, and that's just the men. Now, some people will say that it probably includes women and children also, and so... Uh, there's probably about 15,000 there. I don't know about that. It was only the men that were required to come to Passover. So we know there were more than 5,000, but I don't really want to take a guess as to how many there were. It does explain the overabundance of men, we might say. But uh, regardless, Jesus gets out. And I want you to notice that Matthew says that he healed their sick. That, that term sick is not the normal term that we see for sick. It actually means powerless. In other words, it's at the point of sickness to where you have no energy. You have no power within yourself. You are, you are bedridden, you might say. You are, you are unable to motivate yourself to go. You are, uh, Paul uses this in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 to talk about someone who is, who is desperately ill and, and some have even died. They've even crossed over that line because they were taking communion incorrectly. And so, and so this, is, this is speaking of a, of a, of a sickness and, and that just imagine how difficult it was for them to get here. Galilee is not the most even terrain in the world. And so, and so they are traveling, following Christ. They have no idea where they're going, but they're following him and they're, and they're probably got people who are having to help them travel, help them travel across this terrain, help them uh, get to where they are. They have no idea where they're going, but they're desperate. They're absolute desperation. <laughs> and so when Christ gets out on the shore, he doesn't get mad at them. He doesn't get impatient with them. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I just want to be alone and, and I start getting a lot of phone calls and stuff like that, I, I can get a little grumpy about that, right? Am I the only sinner in the room? No? Okay. So some of you are nodding your head. Yes, you are. So uh, <laughs> you can call me anytime, by the way. Don't, don't get the wrong impression there. But, uh, but, you know, there's a temptation to get aggravated about that, but Jesus didn't do any of that. He sees out on the sea of desperation, and he feels compassion. That's a very strong term in and of itself. If you wanted to translate the sense of it, you could almost say that his heart broke for them. And regardless of his plans, his compassion would allow him to do nothing more than to begin healing their sick. Begin healing their sick. God's incredible compassion is here on full display. A perfect example that we see is in, is in Psalm 78, where uh, we see some kind of thematic elements that are here in this text. Asaph in that psalm is, rec is recounting the history of Israel in the wilderness. And, and over and over and over again, he says, God did this and they sinned. 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 And God provides, they rebel. God provides, they rebel. Several cycles they go through this. And yet despite all their rebellion, 
Asaph records this in Psalm 78, 37 through 39. He says, their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Christ is showing that he is the embodiment of the compassion of God. You see, that Psalm, Psalm 78, it, it culminates that God's ultimate act of compassion to Israel to, to, to help them with their sin is to anoint David as king. And ultimately, we know that the fullest provision of that is David's son. And Christ is showing that he is the fulfillment of that compassionate act. He is the one who is the son of David who is to come and lead them with such incredible compassion of God. Dr. J. Adams, who was kind of the founder of the biblical counseling movement, uh, Logan got to hear a lot about him this weekend. He writes about a counselee who came in and she was supposed to come with her husband, but every time her husband would have to do something else, you know. And so she would complain and, and say, well, he was supposed to come, I know, but he had some other things to do and all that. And he tells about how this counselor said on the third time, he finally tells her, I don't wanna hear about these charges behind your husband's back anymore. I don't think you understand what forgiveness means. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think is gonna happen when that, when that counselee leaves that office that day? She's never coming back, right? Why? Because that counselor had no compassion. He had no compassion. And beloved, let me ask you this. Why is it so strange that we think that God, we think of God as less of a, than a wonderful counselor, that Christ is less of a wonderful counselor, that when we mess up again, when we fall into sin again, we think that God is any less compassionate toward us, that he does not understand that we are made of flesh and that we are weak and that, yes, we mess up again and again and again, just like the nation of Israel. And just like the nation of Israel, he comes back to us. He returns us to himself again and again and again because he understands our weakness and he has compassion toward us. Why, beloved, do you use your sin to run away from him, to back away from him, when that is the time you should be running to him? <coughs> that is the time that you should be drawing closer to him. <coughs> Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but in every way, in every way, one who has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. So then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Beloved, there is no limitation to that. I had an insurance company one time that told me that I was allowed to have four primary visits a year. There is no, beloved, there is no divine insurance. You can see your great physician every hour of the day. And I fear that there may be some in here that you think because you have shown your weakness again, because you have blown it again, because you have struggled again, because you have, because you have yelled at your kids again, because you cheated on your job again, because you have told a lie again, because you have done whatever it is again, you think that now because you've struggled again, you must turn away from him and you're not worthy to be here to find forgiveness. Beloved, that is not the time to run from him. That is the time to run to him. And he is a compassionate high priest who will, who will bring you in every time you return. He accepts you, he loves you, and he will do everything to comfort you. <coughs> he who did not spare his only begotten son will not turn you away in your time of need. He's not just your savior for salvation He's your savior from all your sin. So you need to, you need to run to him, <clears throat> not only because of his unwavering compassion, but because our solutions are inadequate. Our solutions are inadequate. <clears throat> Look at the disciples' request here, and I'm, I'm sorry, whatever this frog is in my throat, it's just driving me crazy, I'm, I hope it's not driving you crazy too. His strength is made perfect in our weakness, right? So. <clears throat> now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the village and buy food for themselves. I'm gonna stop right there for a minute. You know, the disciples get kind of a bad rap for that. I hear, uh, I hear preachers say sometimes that, oh, they're overly pragmatic. You know, they're just thinking in pragmatic terms. They're unspiritual. I heard one, I, I read one commentator who said that in spite of their master's compassion, they were, Ill, they were incompassionate and they're ready to get rid of the crowds. The day is over. Uh, they are introverts. They need to go home, All right? And, uh, and they get really kind of a bad rap for this suggestion. And, and let me just tell you that I find nothing in this text to suggest that to me, that I think the disciples have nothing on their mind except the crowd's welfare. I don't know if you've ever been in Israel during the heat of the day, but it is miserable. It is very hot. And granted, they are on the north side of on the north side of the nation, so they do have the the Golan Heights, the breeze from the Golan Heights coming down. But but it's still a hot part of the day. I mean, it's Middle East. You know how much closer to the equator than you are than we are here. I mean, it's hot. And so I don't think that this has anything but but concern for the for the crowd. And, and let me ask you this: What would you have suggested? What would I have suggested? I mean, would you have suggested anything different? The disciples have no idea what Jesus is going to do. 
And so I really can't think of a better suggestion they could have come up with. And so I, I don't know. I just don't know. And so, but Jesus' response, on the other hand, probably kind of shocked them. He says uh, here in, in verse um, 15, 16, he says here that Jesus said to them, they need not go away. I want you to notice the first thing that Jesus is doing. He's showing them that their suggestion, as, as good as it was, as, as properly motivated as it was, their suggestion was inadequate. It was inadequate. Because think about this. Remember how I told you how difficult it was for them to get where they are? How in the world are they going to go to all the villages and buy food? And by the way, uh, these people are sick, and these are mostly day workers. And so, so they live literally day by day by day. And if they've been sick for a while, they haven't been to work. Where are they going to find money to go into the village to buy something to eat? And by the way, you know what happens when a big surge of people goes in the villages and buys, buys food? You know what happens to the price of that food? Simple economics, supply, demand, right? Price goes up. And so how in the world are they gonna do this? How are they, you know, at minimum, they've missed a day's work. <clears throat> and most of these guys are living day by day. And so how are they gonna do this? Even though the disciples, this is the best they could come up with, but it was inadequate. It was unrealistic. It was unable to be done. Jesus points out that their suggestion was inadequate, but he also kind of points to them and he's gonna show them their suggestion was inadequate because they are. They are inadequate. He says, you give them something to eat. That's a pretty strong Command. That's worded very strongly. You give them something to eat. You know, a lot of people here goes to go to John 6, 9, talks about the size of these loaves. They say we don't have anything here but five loaves and two fish. You know the rest of the story. You know that it was actually didn't even belong to them. It was a, it was a young boy's lunch of barley, probably little loaves of bread, that's not really important to Matthew's theme here. That's not really where he's going with this. What he's doing is he's showing them, he's showing us, and Jesus is showing them their inadequacy. That whatever solutions they have and whatever resources they have is absolutely inadequate to sustain this large crowd of 5,000 men. You know how many right? <laughs> and so whatever they have, it is inadequate. They are inadequate. They don't have the resources. They don't have any good suggestions. And Jesus is pointing that out. One of the greatest passages in ministry is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and following. We don't, we don't see Paul the theologian there. We see Paul the pastor and in several places he talks about, and in this opening text, he, he says that we are marching in a, in a Roman triumphant. It's a triumphant parade. It's declaring the victory of Christ. And he, he compares our sharing the gospel and telling the gospel like throwing potpourri in the air and throwing the great fragrance in the air that for some is the fragrance of victory, and yet for others it is the fragrance of death. 
in captivity. And he says at the end of chapter two, verse 16, he asks, who is sufficient for these things? And he gets a little sidetracked here like Paul tends to do, but he picks us up in, in chapter three, verse four, where he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Beloved, all, all, the, all the sufficiency that we have, he goes on to say, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, not of the law, not of the old covenant, but of the spirit, because the old covenant kills, but the spirit gives life. It is God in our salvation of Christ that has placed us the spirit who is our sufficiency for the Christian life. None of our solutions are adequate. We are not adequate to sustain ourselves. Christ is adequate for us. He is our adequacy. He is our justification. He is our righteousness. He is our wisdom. He is everything for us that we need for life and godliness. Paul picks up this theme again in chapter nine, verse eight, where he says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all time, you may abound in every good work. Our sufficiency, beloved, as a church is in Christ. And the more we lean upon Christ, the more we we, we, we turn to Christ in a daily, weekly routine in those disciplines of grace, the means of grace, the more we participate in those, the more we experience his grace in our lives. Think about all the daily pressures of life that you have. Think about the pressures of our mind. We feel as though we have been overcome, we're overcommitted, Guilt, fear, pressures that come from without the demands of work. Maybe you're overdrawn in your checking account. You feel shameful. You're hiding. You're withdrawn. These things happen. They produce fear, boredom, compulsion, worry, excessiveness or extreme activities. And what do we often do when we try, when we have those things happening? What, how do we try to fix it? What are some of the solutions that we try to come up with? More discipline, more energy, more organization. Churches double down on past successes. We create more space in our schedule. And yet when they fail over and over and over again, all they lead to is greater shame and greater guilt and greater desperation, and greater decline. We've tried all that, and it's failed. Maybe some of you are there this morning. Maybe some of you are right where we're talking about. Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. In fact, let's turn there. Romans 12, one and two, he says, I beg you, I beseech you, I appeal to you, therefore, 
by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. What do we see in that text? As we present ourselves as a living sacrifice daily, holy, acceptable under God, we stop the old practice. We, we do not be conformed to this world we humbly recognize that you cannot handle this on your own. You cannot handle these pressures. Your, your table is, is buckling that is holding all of these weights, these burdens. And the things you try to put up to stabilize it are not working. They're flimsy pieces of foam trying to hold up major burdens in your life <clears throat> because we are determined that we are gonna be self-sufficient. Beloved, put those away. Humbly recognize that you cannot hold these pressures on your own. By the mercies of God, it is his mercies that we draw upon daily his mercies that we draw upon. Meditate on the word by the renewing of your mind. Change your mind about these things and come to a biblical perspective of these pressures. And then do what the word says with wisdom. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why do, we co why do we keep going back to the same old things when Christ has given us everything we need to see this life from his perspective? To see these pressures from his perspective. To look at them a way that we can see that he is for us and he comforts us in our times of need. That we draw upon him with confidence in your hour of need time and time and time again. And we find that he is more than abundant. He is more than sufficient. And that's what we come to in the remaining verses. That Christ's provision for you is abundant. Christ's provision is abundant. Matthew doesn't waste a lot of time. Jesus says, give the two fish and five loaves to me. In verse 19, it's like an action movie where, where the final bad guy is being beaten and it all happens in slow motion where you get to see every high kick and every punch and, and every flip and every, and every all that. I've been watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So uh, been, uh, you get to see all of that. And so all of this slow motion to the final victory, Matthew slows down and gives us a step-by-step. -step. He orders the crowd to sit down. He takes the loaves and the two fish. He looks up to heaven. He says a blessing. He breaks the loaves. He gives them to the disciples. The disciples give them to the crowd and they all ate and were satisfied. Step by step, Matthew points out that this is the emphasis of the text that, that Matthew gives us, that Christ, in a step-by-step -step way, in slow motion, every single person of the 5,000 men eat 
and they're satisfied. And not only that, there's 12 baskets left over. By the way, compare that to the feast of Herod that we just saw last week. It ended in death. It ended in gruesomeness. And yet Christ, when he feeds us, he gives us life in him. There's a very interesting wording here. As you look at those words, he takes the five loaves, he looks up to heaven, he says a blessing, he breaks and he gives. Matthew uses that same combination in another text of scripture that we find in Matthew 26, 26, where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think it is. Some people say, well, that's just the normal uh, routine that a father would give. Jesus is taking the place, kind of assuming the, the father's place here. I think that would be confusing theologically because he's not the father, he's the son. And so I think Matthew is being intentional here and drawing this language that the early church would have recognized. And for his readers, Matthew seems to be drawing upon the symbolism of communion to give us this principle that, that when we draw upon Christ, when we feed upon Christ, by faith, he sustains us. By faith, we draw to him over and over and over again. Think about all of the symbolism that Christ gives. Like for instance, in John chapter six, talking at the same meal, he tells them, I am the bread of life. And this, whoever eats of this bread will not hunger again. And the bread that I give you is my flesh. In other words, in a figurative sense, we continually feed on Christ through faith. We return to him daily. We reach out to him. We pursue him. And those who eat of him will, by faith will never be hungry. And those who drink of his living waters will never thirst again. And the sign of that reality, the sign, the physical sign of that spiritual truth is when we take the Lord's Supper. That's why we take it so often. That's why we take it over and over and over again because it reminds us of that gospel that we are continually feeding on by faith when we're drawing upon him and we're continually relying upon him. I don't know about you, but I need to eat at least you know, a little more than four times a year. <laughs> um, I might get a little hungry you know, around the second month or so, so... Uh, And in the same way, we need to draw upon Christ more than once a week. We need to draw upon Christ more than once a month, more than once a year. We certainly need it more than Christmas and Easter. Did I just say Christer? I think I just invented a new word. We certainly need it more than Christmas and Easter. We need it every day. We need it every day of our lives. Jeremiah chapter two, won't you imagine this scene in heaven where God looks out above all the angels and he says, all of you, all the host of heaven, look at this. He says, be appalled, O heavens, and at this and be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares Yahweh, for my people have committed two evils. 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They have made themselves jars of water with holes. And they keep trying to drink out of them over and over and over again. A few weeks ago, in our deacons meeting, one of our deacons said, men, there is something very serious that we need to have a discussion about. It's something that affects the life of our church. And it is something that needs to be fixed as soon as possible. The coffee machine is broken. And it is, it's broken. It's, 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 it's not working. Hadn't been working for a while. And yet, why do we keep going to it for coffee? Why do we keep going to it to try to get our caffeine fix? I call it, I call, I call coffee my liquid Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, I'm the, the, the flesh, I'm pretty much in the flesh until 7.30 every morning, so... Uh, so until then, it kind of keeps me going, but that was a joke. Don't take that. <laughs> you know it's a joke because you know it's really Diet Dr. Pepper Zero. So, but, but anyway, why do we keep going back to those things that do not hold water when we have the fountain of living waters pouring in our direction? His grace is more than sufficient and it never runs dry. Why are we so tempted to go back to things that cannot promise lasting change, quick results motivated out of concern or fear for the future? Christ says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. He's the one who builds it. He's the one who sustains it. He built it. He will keep it and he will keep you. Ephesians chapter three, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, he's able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. So why keep going back to quick fixes? Get rich schemes never work. Broken coffee pots are not gonna caffeinate you. We need the fountain of living water that never runs dry. We must continually lean upon Christ. I'm out of time, so let me just say this. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your savior, his grace is sufficient to cover all of your sin and that he is offering himself to you as a rescue from your sin. He is a continual supply of forgiveness, of peace, of comfort. But the first thing you need to do is recognize you have a problem. You need to recognize that you are a sinner, that you have disobeyed him, you failed to be like him and that there is accountability for that sin. You've committed high treason against your king. And just like all treason, the punishment is death and judgment. But because God loves you, he sent his only begotten son to 
to live under his rule perfectly and to die on the cross for your sins. And because God was satisfied, his father raised him on the third day. He is now the new king of heaven and earth who is offering himself to you as a delivery, as a rescue, as a savior from your sin. You need only repent of your sins. Give up your self-rule. Give up your inadequate solution. Give up your, your support beams made of foam and come to the true sustenance that is Christ Jesus our Lord and his forgiveness for you. We saw this morning we lean on Christ because his compassion is unwavering. Our solutions are inadequate and his provision is abundant. And beloved, whether you are saved or whether you are lost this morning, those truths are equally valid for each and every one of us. And so maybe you need to come back to Christ for the first time this week or maybe you need to come to Christ for the first time in your life. Whatever it is, his provision for you is abundant and you will find grace over and over again. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for your amazing provision. And I pray, Father, this morning as we are getting ready to close that no one will leave here without a renewed understanding that we come to Christ by faith, we live by faith, we die in faith, and Lord, in our faith, you will glorify us in heaven. Father, if there's one here who does not know Christ as their Savior, I pray this morning they would come forward, they would ask questions, whatever it is they need, or they would come seeking you because you are seeking them. If there's one here who knows you, but they have lived a life of distractions, of contradictions, they're still trying to hold up their life with support beams made of foam, more discipline, more organization, more this, more that, whatever it is. Lord, may they come back to you this morning, forsaking their cisterns, their broken cisterns that cannot hold water, and come back to the living fountains that will never stop flowing for them. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come this morning. If you need prayer, we can certainly pray for you. If you need further guidance, we can take you aside and we can help you with that. If you are here in need of Jesus Christ, we can certainly, we, we would love to talk with you and to tell you how you can know Christ as Savior. Perhaps you're here, you've received the word, but you need to confess Christ in baptism. We invite you to come and make that arrangement. Maybe you want to join the church. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come forward. Let's stand together and let's uh, sing together just a verse or two. We're running late. I apologize for the late hour. And so let's, uh, let's sing this together. And-